Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Zarling. And our guest today is Scott. Scott is a shut-in member at Water of Life, and uh, I don't know him as well as Pastor Zarling does, but uh, maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Welcome, Scott. Welcome to my home. I'm glad to do this. Yes, thank you. I forgot to mention, we're recording in Scott's home. I was a firefighter, retired as a captain from the Great Lakes Naval Training Center Fire Department. I gave them 28 years, 8 months of service. Yeah, and I like uh, Jeremy said, I've known Scott for a long time, my 19 years here. Uh, his wife, Sue, was our church secretary when I got here, took our family and their new pastor under her wings, his uh, we all know, Jeremy, that it's really the church secretary that runs the church. There's a lot of truth to that. Yep. And and she did. And then she was our youngest daughter, Belle's godmother, until God called Sue home to himself in heaven. And then Scott and Sue's daughters, Bethany and Sarah, became, uh, became Belle's godmothers then. So, Scott, if you want to tell us, what does it take— to be a firefighter, you know, what kind of training goes into it? Because my brother-in-law is a firefighter up in Milwaukee as well. Well, up there, he went to a, went to a recruit class for a few, quite a few months. Down by me, it was, we get on the job training. We train Monday through Saturday morning. Uh, we train uh, every day. There's something on the drill schedule. Whether we're pulling holes, raising ladders, drivers training, spotting fire hydrants, hydrant location, building locations. Um, I went there with a uh, associate degree from the Gateway Technical Institute in firefighting. So we just, it's always training. And I, I told friends, that I have never, ever stopped training, because then you might as well retire. What you did? <laughs> well, I retired because of health, not because of training. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed these uh, items over here on the floor of your house that I, I kind of thought, you know, one of them looks like, it, well, we've got our Star Wars fan here. I thought maybe that was like a lightsaber, but uh, then I think... They, they kind of look like trophies, but now I'm starting to realize, are those uh, the uh, hose attachments? Yeah, they're nozzles. I had... Uh, <coughs> pardon me. I own two and a half antique fire apparatus, and uh, Zarlings have been privileged to ride on them in the 4th of July parades when I was drivable. And um, I still collect uh, fire apparatus of all sizes, from the matchbox to the bigger um, diecast. I make my own. As you can see, I make them all different colors. I collect slides and pictures of all different colored fire apparatus. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting when you see Scott's collection that goes, like you said, from a matchbox car to a full-size fire truck. yeah. Those two on the screen right there I own. Okay. Where are they? Are they on the property here? Or? No, we have a, there's a collective group of us. We rent a horse barn out in Raymond, and we have 22 antique fire apparatus. Oh, neat. Yeah, it's awful right out in that barn, so... Hmm. So, so for the the women who listen to this podcast, if you think that your husband's collection of whatever it is may be out of control, that's nothing unless they're they're buying like full size vehicles and putting them in a in a horse barn somewhere. Well, and then if you notice, the dining room is blood red. That's fire engine red. Uh, we did that. Well, my wife and my oldest daughter. 
We're on a woman's retreat one weekend, Sarah, my youngest daughter, and I. We put three coats of red, and it could use a fourth coat. And and was uh, Sue's? It was at the shade of Sue's face when she came in and saw that wall. Uh, no, she she wasn't too bad with it. Okay, and we had started putting up some of my. Uh, all the fire-related pictures and that, so. Okay. We got away with that one, and then when we went on our ski weekend, one of our ski weekends, the girls painted this living room tan, so that was the first of changing the colors in the house from white to different. Okay. So we got her. So... In preparation for for this podcast, I spent some good quality time on the internet, and I happened to watch some firefighters that were doing like speed racing, where yeah. they would be, uh, you know, imagine like a drag race car, except it would be like a fire truck, and then with the ladder hanging off and the guys there, and then they're running, and all in one motion, they're taking the ladder up as the truck is pulling away, they're putting the the ladder down and then uh, there's already two guys that are running up the ladder and then the other guys are grabbing buckets and then uh, putting buckets of water like a brigade up the ladder and that's all within like two seconds that are up the guys are up the ladder and then the other guys are handing the water up it's it's pretty amazing yeah I've seen that that's a lot of uh, east coast fire companies have that all the volunteers do that as a collective competition. Have you ever had any, uh, have you ever been on a boat, like a fire boat that uh, put out fires from the water? No, we didn't have that. We had a uh, Zodiac type boat that I had to be trained on for dive rescue. So I was an actual boat handler for our dive team. So one of the guys that will get on our podcast later on so that Jeremy and I can talk about boats is uh, is a uh, one of the guys that, that is retired from the Coast Guard, and then we can talk about boats. How much do you know about boats? Maybe just a little bit more than I know about f- fire, fire, trucks. fire trucks. All right, so then we're the same because I don't know anything about either one. Uh, so then, Scott, what's it like in the firehouse? You know, for for the guys and the ladies in the firehouse. Well, it's another family. I spend 24 hours every other day with that family. I work 72 hours a week, 24 on, 24 off. And the seventh shift on, I had off. So it would rotate. It would be a Monday one week, a Wednesday the next week, or the next two weeks. And then when I would get a Friday off, I would automatically have the Sunday following off. So I had a fun nice five-day weekend because the Friday was the last day of the pay period. Sunday was the first, so they had to put them together like that. And we got a five-day weekend out of it. But otherwise, I spent more time with my family at the firehouse than I did here a lot of times. Especially, you know, you look at an hour each way, 24 hours at the firehouse, that leaves about 20, 22 hours once I get home. So, And they were always in school or working. So I was blessed to have a very strong Christian wife to do both roles a lot of the times. Did you ever have uh, somebody that parked in front of a hydrant? And what do you do if that happens? (laughs) No. I'm so disappointed that was... I wanted to do that, especially the four years I drove fire engine. When I first was promoted, I drove ladder truck. And that's a truck that has the big ladder on it. Ours had the semi-version where the guy sat in the back to steer the back. 
So I would either, one day I would drive the back, one day I would drive the front. <clears throat> but the four years I drove engine, I was, oh, come on, let us have a fire and let some idiot block the hydrant. <laughs> please. Because what, please. We, what, what are you supposed to do? Well, if I can't make the connection by going around the car, it's break a window and break a window and put that hose through. And unfortunately, you, you know, you want to pray for a leaker, but you can't have no leaker. You can't have it leaking because then you have risk a chance of it bursting and then you got to start all over. So you just break out the windows and go through because if you kink the hose, just like when you kink a garden hose, you're restricting flow and... I need all five inches of that water coming into my pumper. So can you tell us any good, I, I'm sure there aren't any, uh, you know, good fire stories. No. But can you think of ones that are memorable to you that you want to share with our audience? <clears throat> well, I remember one specifically where God was on my side or with us. We, it was the, I was uh, just a new captain, and I was sent out to go do a fire drill by the battalion chief. And as I stopped at the stop sign, I looked, and our main firehouse was attached. Two-thirds of the building was a public works garage, and there was smoke pouring out of the far garage door. So I went back in and sounded the alarm, and we went and we made entry into a man door and to go into the garage to see if we could see and find it. And just as we made our way out, the roof collapsed. Wow. It was all in the ceiling, in the exhaust. Um, the exhaust fan, it's one of the exhaust fans that shorted out. And all that oil-soaked wood in the wood ceiling, rafters and that had been burning. And it really got a hole because of the oilness up there. And it was, they were only gone for three or four hours. That's how fast it spread. So we got out in time, so... So why were the beams soaked in oil? Well, it was a public works garage, and, you know, you get oil floating in the air and all that from the garage work. Mm. So they were old, and they were old. That building dated back to World War II, so they were all dried out. So it didn't take much for them to take off. Mm. How about uh, any stories about rescuing people? I mean, that's a good story of you just making out barely, but what about... I've got three rescues. One didn't turn out good. One was uh, we were coming home from a family vacation in Mississippi, and we stopped in southern Illinois so the kids could swim at a hotel and rest, we could rest. I was one step away from this little girl bouncing along who didn't realize that there was a deep end, it wasn't a shallow pool. And she went and she went down in the deep end and I just picked her right up and gave her to her mother. <clears throat> Child was very scared and mama was very thankful. Next, we were out riding one winter day in Great Lakes. We would always ride down by the lakefront down at Great Lakes. And my driver and I looked out and said some not-so-nice words about what is that out there? It's a sailor walking on the ice mound. And we, you know, being on the lake, now, if you picture our lake here where you're familiar with, with Lake Michigan, where you got the breakwater, we had no breakwater down there. So we had really big ice mounds. And when we saw the sailor walking out there, and it ended up being a young lady from the south who's never seen that, well, we put the scare of God into her uh, 
quite heavily that she would never have been found if she would have fallen. She would have floated. Maybe they would have found her down in Indiana. But there's no telling if she would ever have been found because of that. So we dropped her off at the barracks. And then my not-so-good rescue was we were out. A few of us went to another department to take a state-certified firefighter test. And we got back. We got called back because we had a structure fire. So I had to go the farthest of our group to the main part of the base to get a vehicle to come back to the fire. And I was in the back of the building, back in their backyard, and Captain, one of the captains walked by me and said, Hi, Scott. And I said, Hi, Captain Pierce. And he fell over face forward. And I can still see and hear his helmet hitting that ice-covered snow from our hoses. And his helmet went sliding, and I dropped down and rolled him over, undid his, uh, his clasps on his turnout coat, pulled the snaps, did our, went through our pro protocols on CPR, ripped open his shirt, still see and hear his buttons bouncing off of the snow, and still feel... his ribs breaking as I started doing CPR on him, only to be tapped off and let one of our EMTs start over on him. Unfortunately, Captain succumbed to his heart attack as it was one of those heart attacks that, or I should say heart conditions, that you only find on the autopsy table. There was no... Our physicals showed every year everything was fine, so there was no telling when this thing would have come up, and it came up that night. I think it was in 81 or 82, February, when it was cold and snowy and icy out. So still remember all that. Okay. Still remember the good times, but remember the bad times as well. So with that, what, since you mentioned the good times and bad times, how difficult is that for firefighters, and I'm imagining police officers too, to be able to deal with that? You know, can, do they bring that home with them? Is it uh, well, you you know, try, like a, like a military veteran? Try not to bring it home. You always, I always try to leave work at work. And Susie respected me for that. So she just wanted to know oh, how many false alarms did you go out on last night? When I get home, I'd always call her at the office and say, well, we, how many false alarms? I'd say, none. Okay, well, here's your list then. <laughs> and then I, I do what I was told. I mean, it's a, a marriage is a two-way street. It's you know, it makes takes two people to make it work. So I would get done. Amazing what kind of work you could get done with your dad here helping you, and nobody else. You didn't have to watch the kids. Uh, they were both in school at WLS at the time. Susie was working. So um, I could get a lot done and then have more time for them when they got home. How did you and your wife meet? Um, our, our parents were, our fathers were members of a local fire buff group called the Racine Firebells. And at the time, all they did was go out and, and service the Racine Fire Department when they were called. At that time, they just gave them donuts and soda and coffee. And then I met her through them, going over by Paul's house. We went over there a lot, visited uh, Dad and him. were real good friends. And then one of my real good friends was getting married in 81, 80, 1980. 
And uh, my mom said, hey, why don't you take Susie to that wedding? And that's what started it all. So it sounds like firefighting is quite the family business on both sides. Yeah. Both my, both dads were really heavily involved in the fire bells. And then when the fire bells got their museum downtown Racine, they were really, if you wanted two tour guides, you wanted one of those to give you the tour. And I guess I followed suit with my dad because one of the party on the pavement, a woman come up to me after I was done talking to her, and she accused me of being a 150-year-old firefighter because <laughs> of how I spoke uh, my mannerisms and my knowledge of of the museum. Very good. And then, you know, we have been blessed since our time here riding on uh, Scott's fire truck in the Racine Parade. Uh, I know you've been and watched the Racine Parade, Jeremy, with your family. Uh, I don't know. Have you been there to watch the pre-parade? I don't know that I've seen the... Oh, wait. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. Because it's a long parade the way it is going all the way through Racine, but it's it's so long they have a pre-parade where they have the firefighters, the case tractors, and, and so forth. and The military. Yeah. And so... Uh, but just... Our family, other families from church would be able to get on Scott's fire trucks and his other friends' fire trucks all decked out in red going into the parade, which makes me think of the parade that we're going to study with Palm Sunday. Huh? Is that a good segue? It, it's it's a segue of some kind. <laughs> uh, Jerry, if you want to read the gospel lesson. This is Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go to the village ahead of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied there along with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king comes to you. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did, just as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their outer clothing on them, and he sat on it. A very large crowd spread their outer clothing on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them out on the road. The crowds who went in front of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, ask, asking, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So, Scott, as you see Jesus enter Jerusalem, how do you reconcile that he is humble and yet he's also a king? Well, he's humble because he's riding on a colt, a colt that's never been ridden before. But that would make him a king because it's a never been ridden colt before. Okay. Yeah, and so the the theme that we have in our for our worship services are as a greater type of king. And then, Jeremy, how is Jesus fulfilling prophecy by riding a donkey into Jerusalem? This was uh, what the prophet Zechariah predicted about him, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. Uh, several hundred years before uh, somebody is born, that that uh, person would say, uh, this person that's going to be born in a couple hundred years from now uh, is going to ride on... That, that would be kind of like hundreds of years before Michael Zarling is born, somebody uh, saying... Uh, that there will be this man named Michael Zarling, and then uh, he's going to ride on a fire truck in a Racine parade, <laughs> and then and then it actually happens. Uh, that could only be done by some kind of miraculous power of God. Yeah, and one of the things too with this is, uh, I think a lot of people will say, and I've heard pastors say this from the pulpit. Well, Jesus isn't the kind of king that's riding a stallion. You know, he's humble and riding a, 
a donkey. And yet, uh, I've probably known this in the past, but really learned more of this as I was studying for this week, is that a king, any kind of leader, would really only only wear ride a stallion if they're riding into war. They're coming into battle. But if they were riding a, a donkey, that means they're coming in peace. And two examples of that from Scripture, uh, one is Absalom, that Absalom's conspiracy to make himself king in 2 Samuel 15. It says, After this, Absalom acquired for himself a chariot, horses, and 50 men to run in front of him. But then you compare that with David's appointment of his son Solomon as king, as in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings 1, verse 32, the king said to Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah, take your Lord's servants with you. Have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to the Gihon Spring. Uh, but with that too, Jeremy, uh, this was something that struck me as I was reading this, as we're re- focusing on Jesus in his humility riding on a donkey, and yet uh, it struck me, do you, might, do you see any kind of parallel with uh, a comparison to the white rider uh, or the, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19? How so? I guess I was just seeing, you know, that that horse, the white horse and the rider, that's often pictured as Christ or at least the gospel, you know, and that is coming out and spreading the gospel. And that's what Christ is you know, he's coming into Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. I don't know. I just maybe pictured the 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 horse and donkey. I think the the first thing that came to mind as I was thinking about your question. Thank you for talking, so I could think about your question. Um, that uh, in Revelation it says that he he went out to conquer, and uh, that that kind of seems at odds with the idea of uh, a donkey being a symbol of the king coming in peace. He's not coming to conquer. Uh, he's coming in peace. Now, again, I'm not saying that the rider on the white horse is not Jesus. I think that could be Jesus too. It's just a different thought than the the peaceful uh, donkey riding. But coming, coming to conquer with peace, what you said there makes me think of how does Christ conquer in his, in his spiritual realm? It's with the peace of the gospel. In a, in a world that's so riled up, because we're recording this at the end of the week as we see what had happened in Nashville with the, uh, the murderer that went in and shot three young children and three adults. And then just a couple days later, you have people that are storming the Capitol in Nashville and you see all this unrest. Well, what's the only thing that can calm them down is that gospel of peace for Christ to conquer it. Scott, of what significance is the fact that Jesus is the son of David? Well, David was just a humble man. He was a king of the, he was a king at that time, but he was just a humble humble man. Okay? And Jesus brought forth the humility of that. Anything else you want to add to that, Jeremy? I'm trying to think of uh a good example of of David's humility and maybe maybe I could just think of um how he would uh he he didn't he didn't feel like he needed all of the fancy armor that Saul was trying to put on him when he went to fight Goliath or um yeah a, a lot of times he would he would keep a low profile he didn't want he didn't want people to know who he was um yeah and there what I was thinking with that question is that the people don't realize it, I don't think, but they do know that the greater king, uh, you know, David was their greatest king, and now that greater king is going to come to supplant David on his throne. And I don't know if they realize that Jesus is really that king and that he has ties to, to David both by his his mother and his father. Their lineage is from the line of David. That's what Luke writes about in... in uh, in Luke chapter 2. Uh, Jeremy, what does the word Hosanna mean, and why are the people crying that out here? 
it, it means save or rescue. So uh, I suppose that's that's something that a <laughs> a firefighter does a little bit of is rescuing. Um, but uh, it, they're they're saying it to Jesus because uh, they want they want to be rescued. They recognize him as some kind of a savior, and uh, whether that maybe maybe some of them had a mistaken notion that he was a political rescuer. But that doesn't change the fact that he is the one who can truly deliver. He can truly save them. Yeah, so there's a lot packed into that one single word. Uh, you know, and I think that's a good word for us during this Lenten season because it's a time when we mute our other one word like Alleluia. And so we, we save that until the Easter vigil and Easter morning. But we can still use words of praise and Hosanna would be one of them. And I guess I have one one more question, Jeremy, on this. And throw your way is, and this surprised me as I was studying this again. So I didn't even write a question about this, but you know he's writing in Jerusalem, and there's uh, estimates from uh, secular historians that the city of Jerusalem would swell to like two million pilgrims. And you and I have been blessed to be in Jerusalem separately, and it's not a big town, and they're not wide roads, not like here in Racine they're they're pretty narrow so it's pretty packed but they have less construction on their roads <laughs> that's right I I, I was passing by a, a utility sign over by the fire department by our middle school and someone had uh, put an F in front of the word utility you know <laughs> instead of utility work ahead it said futility work ahead <laughs> and, and what was funny is it was right in front of the fire department too <laughs> Uh, in front of the yeah fire department police department downtown because they're right next to each other. Uh, but what I was wondering is you've got all of these people as pilgrims in Jerusalem. You have all of these people outside the city walking in. They they stop, cut down palm branches. They take their coats off and they start shouting hosannas. And then people are asking, as a part of the parade, who is this? Why do you think they're asking that question? Is it related just to what you were saying about how densely populated it was? This the city was the this festival was bringing in even more pilgrims, and uh, this is yeah, this is something that we do whenever we're in a crowd. We're like, well, what's going on? Who who? Oh, who's talking right now? Or you know, oh, what what's uh, what's happening up in front? It looks like there's something going on. Uh, there, it's a big crowd. There's. Uh, a lot of curiosity that people have. Yeah, I, I didn't really have an answer for the question. I was just wondering, you know, why they're asking that question. Who is this? But I, I like that answer. Uh, you know, I think, too, of, you know, being in parades down in Disney World when we take our girls when we lived in Kentucky. And we went down there for a vacation, or maybe it was when we were up here. And then, uh, you know, who is this? You know, what's coming? Because everyone's lining up. And you know, why is everyone lining up? Usually, you line up to go on a ride or something, and they're all lining up the street. So someone's coming. And then, you know, what? I think we might say, well, what's coming? You know, with the parades up here, you can hear the fire, the fire trucks coming, and so forth. But who is this? You know, if there's someone special, and and I would think a lot of people really didn't know who Jesus was either. Anything else you, either of you guys want to add to this text? I don't want to add anything to it. I'm just going to let the text be in the Bible. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. I shouldn't add to God's word, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not going to subtract anything from it either. Good. All right. Do you want to get into the epistle lesson then, Jeremy? This is Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. Paul writes, Indeed, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed. But he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. When he was born in human likeness and his appearance was like that of any other man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God also exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And I think, Jeremy, that this is almost always, if not always, the epistle lesson assigned uh, for Palm Sunday, isn't it? I'm sure there are lectionaries or pericopes that have, you know, things. That we, there are lots of times that talk on Palm Sunday about, I'd say for the most part, yes. Yeah. I Just off the top of my head, I think that this is almost always always there so and there's a reason why those that put together the lectionary the church year readings picked this one and we'll talk about that so scott what example of humility did paul place before the christians in the city of philippi that the sins would be forgiven i think by a humble man, he would die a humble death. Okay, yeah, he's pointing to, to Christ, who is true God and true man. He's pointing to them to say, here is your example of humility. Uh, so, so Jeremy, you know, we can help our listeners here. Uh, what are the six steps of Christ's humiliation that we teach our confirmands? I've never taught any steps. I've, I maybe maybe I've I've taught. F- phases or uh you could i didn't i didn't I, I guess the numbers six and five are not things that i specifically remember learning or or myself teaching what what do you yeah so i just teach them from the creed and what made me think of this question too is we just went through this a few weeks ago with two of my adult confirmands well uh cory uh just finished a class and he'll be confirmed very soon. And then his wife, Michaela, uh, asked to take the classes with him as we were going through the classes. And uh, she wouldn't remember something. I would tell her, oh, well, that must have been the other pastor that was teaching catechism class that day that you don't remember the answer. And then if she remembered it, then I'd say, well, I must have been the one teaching it that day. But we were talking about it that it would have been – about 10 years ago, maybe even 12 years ago, when she had uh, catechism classes. So a lot slips through the cracks. But what I would teach was the six steps of Christ's humiliation from the Apostles' Creed, uh, that he was conceived, born, suffered, crucified, died, and buried. And then I would teach then the five steps of Christ's exaltation based on, uh, you know, he humbled himself and became obedient to, to death, even death and a cross. That's his humiliation, and therefore God highly exalted him. And then the, the five steps that we also recite in the Apostles' Creed is his resurrection, descent into hell, ascension into heaven. He sits at God the Father's right hand, and he will come to judge on the last day. And I don't know, Jeremy, I sent you your dad's sermon that was preached down at Resurrection for one of their anniversaries. Did you listen to your dad's sermon? No. Oh, okay. I did. That's why I sent it to you. And I said, this is a good sermon because uh, I want to keep all the lightnings happy. <laughs> and, but it was a good sermon. And he said something in that sermon that I had never thought of before. He said, all of these steps, and he probably used the word steps, but all of these have been fulfilled except for one. And that is Christ's uh, Christ judging on the last day, returning and judging on the last day. And obviously I knew that. I knew he hasn't come back, but just to put it so so frankly and starkly was kind of an interesting point in the sermon. So you should listen to your dad with when he's preaching. I'll make a point of doing that. Uh, so, uh, so, Scott, what does Paul mean when he writes... He did not consider equality with God a prize to be displayed. Well, he didn't. He put Christ as one of us and not somebody higher that would be receive special attention. Okay. He was treated as a common criminal when he was crucified. Yeah, so that's part of his humility. Uh, Humility is humiliation. So then, Jeremy, if you want to build on that, why doesn't Christ need to grasp the prize of being God? Because he has it already. He um, he he doesn't he doesn't need to use it for his own advantage. Uh, he's not going to lose his his 
godhood, his deity, um, and uh, it, it would not save us for him to show off or display his deity uh, for his own sake. Uh, the only reason he, he shows off his deity, like for example, transfiguration, he showed very clearly that he was God on the mountaintop, but uh, the only reason he did that was so that we could more firmly put our faith in him. Um, and so he's not using it for his own benefit. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't need to grasp humility, uh, to be like God, because like you said, he is God. He didn't lose his divinity when he took on the humanity, but he added the humanity to the divinity. And if our listeners have questions on that, go to the Athanasian creed that will clear everything up right over and over again. Uh, So then, Jeremy, what does Paul mean when he writes, he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant? Uh, I think it's important to point out that he emptied himself does not mean he became less God or he emptied his Godhood from him uh, or even even man. He didn't empty his manhood or his his humanity from himself. Uh, He emptied himself just means... Um, that he did not make full and frequent use of his divine features. Um, he, 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 he lowered himself. Right. And you know, like I just mentioned, the Athanasian Creed. So here's a little quote from it. Though he is both God and man, Christ is not two persons, but one. One not by changing the deity into flesh, but by taking the humanity into God. Uh, and... There, I was going to do some research on uh, our new hymnal with the Nicene Creed changing from uh, truly human to fully human. I didn't get a chance to do that. I think it used to be fully, and now it's truly. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I didn't... I had asked Jeremy, I texted him, you didn't get a chance to look that up either. Did I you? was going to, and now I forgot. Yeah, and I didn't get a chance to. I have the, I have the link open to, to read uh, the explanation from the, from the seminary. One of the professors had written why that is, but uh, if any of our listeners want to study before Jeremy and I get a chance to do that, uh, you can just go to the Christian worship hymnal site and then if you look at the resources and so forth they'll have some information on there and then you can write in and let us know know the answer so Scott in what ways did Jesus humble himself in his life can you give us some examples well like when he was a child he would just play with the clay and make doves only his flew there you go. Uh, he was more of a just, uh, he gave the portraying about just a humble man. But then when he'd turn around and tell a guy to get up and walk, or he'd spit on a guy's eyes and he'd make him see, proved he was more than just a humble man. So the, the accounts of him making doves when he was a kid, that that doesn't come from the Bible. That uh, is, uh, those are apocryphal or right. Yeah, yeah. But it's still a good story. But yeah, we don't. Yeah, it's not scriptural. We we don't we don't know for sure that that could could have happened. But we just don't know for sure that it did. Right. Yeah. But w- with this, what's the greatest example that Paul points to, Jeremy, of Christ's humiliation? You could really take any of it. See, the reason that I kind of backed off on the word steps and try to say phases is because. It's not like he 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 continually went down and down and down. It, it was all just bad from or it, it was all just lowliness from the beginning of his life, even from being conceived in the womb. Uh, for God, being conceived in the womb is is a a, a lowering, um, and so I I guess you could say when Paul says in verse eight, even death on a cross that. Uh, you, you've pretty much got with crucifixion the the worst way of executing a criminal that humankind has ever thought of, uh, and that was when God sent His Son into the world to die that that 
type of a death, and it was reserved only for the people who were uh, slaves or non-Roman citizens. Um, it, it was considered so shameful, in fact, that polite society, there, there's not a lot of um, literature. In Even though there was a lot of things written during the Roman period of history, there's not a lot of mention of crucifixions even though they happened very often, just because it was so distasteful uh, as, a, as a subject of conversation. And I was looking through some old sermons of mine as I was preparing to write uh, next week's Good Friday sermon. And, you know, I've used descriptions of what a crucifixion is. And I still remember that's the only time that I've ever had someone that really just walked out of the sermon. You know, I've had people walk out of the sermon before because of the use of restroom and so forth. But this was, they were visibly bothered because I had described what a crucifixion is. And it's hard. You know, think of any of our people, if they've tried to watch The Passion of the Christ. Everything from him being whipped all the way to his death on the cross, that is just brutal and it's hard to watch. Uh, and I think, I never heard that what you said, Jeremy, about the Roman historians not really having a lot of information about crucifixions. Uh, but, uh, you know, the point of my question was, yeah, that Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross, a, a cross that is prophesied in the Old Testament that cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. And Jesus is cursed then. So then, Scott, according to verses uh, 10 and 11, what's going to happen on the last day? We'll all rise up and be judged by God and Jesus. Yeah. You want to give any more depth in, to that, Jeremy, of what exactly Paul says we're going to see? That uh, in verse 10, uh, every knee will bow, and 11 says every tongue will confess. Uh, so... Even people who weren't believers in Jesus here on this earth are going to have to admit that he truly was the, the King of Kings and God's Son and our Savior, uh, and they, they will be forced to bow uh, even if they don't really want to. So this text reminds me, Jeremy, of First Thessalonians 4 where it says that every eye will see him. But I always wonder... Since the world is a globe, how can every eye see Jesus at the same time? I think that the surface of the earth is going to be unwrapped and uh, rewrapped stadium style around him. <laughs> is that really what you teach? That's my no. Okay. I, that, that I, I did say I did suggest that in a sermon once. Okay, uh, but uh, I. That's just my personal theory. That's not anything that the Bible says. Well, I like that one better than mine. I always just think of when I teach this, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know if Jesus is going to flatten out the earth. And I don't believe in a flat earth theory. I do believe that the earth is really a, a circle. A ball. Yeah. Uh, but just, I don't know. Somehow every eye is going to see him uh, and every knee is going to bow. Even those that pierced him, even those that were against him. So that comes from Revelation, uh, Revelation 1. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the Thessalonians reference is that uh, we will be caught up to the Lord in the air. So uh, at least at some point in time, we're going to get to be, uh, we're going to get to fly. Uh, and maybe that's how it happens, that everybody is floating up in the air everybody is flying on the last day at least the believers are and uh, in that way they can see they can they can all have their eyes on Jesus okay yeah and uh, it says also in revelation that the kings of the earth uh, they're going to be the ones that want the are going to call for the mountains to fall on them because they would rather have that kind of death than to have, than face Christ's judgment. And in Psalm 2, I think it is, it says that uh, that the kings of the earth stand against God. It's the one thing that all the kings of the earth, all the governments, 
that they all agree on, and it's to go against God. And so we shouldn't be surprised by that. But yet, God's going to make those kings and unbelievers, the atheists, and even the demons, because I've been just teaching on angels and demons with my eighth grade apologetics class, that even the demons are going to have to bow the knee, not in worship, but in respect and honor. Uh, And then the last question, Jeremy, how does verse 11 describe one way in which God is glorified in our lives? When we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And how do we do that? Uh, by saying the creed. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, by, by sharing your faith. Yeah. Sharing faith. So, Scott, you know, I guess being personal, how has your family uh, fulfilled that verse up till now, you know, glorifying Christ in your lives? Well, we worship God at Water of Life. We do other things at Water of Life. Uh, my daughter Sarah just did the taco bar Lenten supper, and then she's filled in now for me for the last two years on doing uh, red sauce for masticholi at the Lenten supper. Yeah, it's it's not, it's actually called Scott's famous masticholi, and in our bulletins, it's uh, a. <clears throat> Going from eight guys feeding eight guys at the firehouse to feeding a hundred people or more at church uh, Lenten supper isn't that about the same eight firemen and or a hundred people? Mm, pretty close. Okay. Yeah, and and I was thinking too of your family because you grew up at Epiphany. Yes. Yeah, and then to see, you know, all of the uh, the generations from your parents being uh being there and then you and then your daughters and then uh with bethany uh marrying her you know she wasn't married at the church but i married i was the one that performed that wedding and then lord willing baptisms and so forth but those are all ways that we see god being glorified in our lives anything else you guys want to bring up with these two texts no i i think i'm set all right. I'm good. All right. I'm going to start coughing, so. <laughs> All right. Well, this is Michael Zarling with Scott Tangestrom, and I always call him Chief, uh, whether he's at the church or I've been blessed all these years now that with his illness, that's kind of taken him and forced him into retirement uh, to come over and visit him to give him communion. So he's the Chief, and then also Jeremy. So, uh I like to call him lighten in the load because that's what he does for me in the ministry. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the waters of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>